Good morning to you. Today, we are again in the final part of the final chapter of 1 Corinthians. And this cluster of Scripture is organized around three subjects. Plans, clans, and commands. Plans, clans, and commands. Now, last time we were together, we focused on the plans portion of this passage. Today, we want to focus on the clans portion of this passage. Now, what do I mean by clans? Well, in just 15 verses, there are eight individuals and four churches specifically mentioned. There are clusters of people. And the question we want to answer from these clans based on this Scripture is this. Who does God use to build His kingdom? From these 15 verses, as we look at the people and congregations mentioned in this passage, the question we want to think about is, who does God use to build His kingdom? And so as we turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 16, Let's first turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time in His timeless text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to You this morning. We come to You asking here on the Sunday of Pentecost, the Sunday where we think about how You birthed the church how you took a a, a band of 120 gathered in an upper room praying for you to work, and then you filled them with your Holy Spirit as a guarantee that they would be with you forever. You invested one-third of yourself in us. We are holding this treasure in jars of clay. And through this anointing of Your Spirit, through this residing of Your Spirit, we were also empowered for service for Jesus, for Your glory and for the fame of Your name. Not for our glory or our denomination or congregation, but for Your glory. And so we ask, Lord, as we come this Pentecost Sunday, that Your Holy Spirit would take Your Holy Scriptures and make us a holy people who are wholly invested in the work of the Lord. And we know that the empires of man are transient, and they rise and they fall, but You are building an unshakable kingdom. And that which we do for You will outlast us. That which is done for Jesus will span into eternity. And though we may see results on our end that seem meager, they shall linger because you take a mustard seed and make a great tree. And you are building a great church. And you build it in spite of viruses and riots and economic challenges, and all of the things that shake the empires of men do not touch the unshakable kingdom of God. In fact, you often use the great tumult to break up the hard-packed soil of our hearts that we might allow the good seed to fall on good soil that it would bear a good crop. So Lord, help us to remember the fields are white unto harvest and make us industrious 
servants of Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 16, and we shall begin at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Now when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So be subject to such of these and to every fellow worker and fellow laborer. Now I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, they send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. So greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, the first topic Paul tackles is what we looked at last time, and that was regarding plans, regarding plans. Verses 5 through 9 give us a wealth of biblical counsel on the Christian perspective on planning. And so we're going to review that just for a brief moment on the slide in front of you. Regarding plans, Christians can and should make plans. We should take the effectiveness of our service into account in our planning while recognizing that strong opposition is not necessarily a sign of being outside of the will of God. Being logical and practical in our planning is entirely spiritual and acceptable, and we must be sensitive to the investment of time in doing something as unto the Lord. And lastly, last time we were together, we saw that we must hold our plans loosely and tentatively under God's ultimate sovereignty. So even as He encourages us to plan The plan isn't God, God is God, and He's allowed to amend and alter the plan. So if you were not with us, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon again. But today, we're going to focus in on the second significant subject of plans, clans, and commands. We're going to talk about the disparate list of people 
our passage mentions in rapid succession. Uh, Some are heading to Corinth, like Paul and Timothy and hopefully, eventually, Apollos. Some are coming from Corinth to minister to Paul, such as Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. And some are seen to be always on the move, like Aquila and Prisca in our passage, who show up in Corinth, who show up in Ephesus, who show up in Rome at various times in our New Testament. Some of these saints are only mentioned in totality, such as the the churches of Asia, sort of modern Turkey, Asia Minor, which send you greetings. And lastly, there is at least one unnamed saint who is implied in the text, and we'll hear more about him a little while later. It's Paul's amanuensis. And if you're choking on that word, we'll explain that later as well. Here's the thing. If all of Scripture is God-breathed, and all of Scripture is useful for for teaching and rebuking and, and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, what aren't we to learn from these particular people? From these eight individuals and four churches scattered across 15 verses. And that brings us to point two regarding plans Clans and commands. Regarding clans, letter A today is this. God uses bold, seemingly fearless people to build His kingdom. God uses bold, seemingly fearless people to build His kingdom. We see this in verses 8 and 9. There's no getting around it. Uh, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, who's the I Paul is speaking of? Well, it is the author of our epistle, the Apostle Paul. Paul is deliberately staying on in Ephesus. Now, let's remember that Ephesus is the epicenter for the occult in the ancient world. It was a wicked and notoriously occultic place. And yet Paul is continuing to remain and stay on in Ephesus, at least until Pentecost, because God is using Paul as a catalyst for a powerful revival among those long, benighted people. And yet, notice in our text, right where God is clearly at work, many adversaries are also at work seeking to thwart the work. And and so, I want you to remember what ministry looks like according to Scripture and the ministry of Paul in particular. We often think, well, I would love to be effective like the Apostle Paul. Well, there is a price to that level of effectiveness. This is what ministry looked like for the Apostle Paul, Paul the bold, Paul the fearless. In 2 Corinthians 11.25, Paul gives us the anatomy of an apostle, what, what it feels like to do ministry in the face of many adversaries. And he says in 2 Corinthians 11.25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have uh, labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. 
I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I always find it interesting that of all the stuff in that passage, the thing that seems to weigh most heavily on Paul's mind is the churches that he's wanting to see flourish in a world that wants to see them perish. Friends, throughout church history, there have been many, 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 many bold and seemingly fearless witnesses for Jesus. One of them is a man named Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna back in 156. Polycarp was a direct disciple of the last living apostle, the Apostle John. He's our direct linkage to the last living apostle. And history records that, that the Romans took this elderly pastor, Polycarp, and they demanded he renounce his faith. And Polycarp replied, For 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my Savior, this 86-year-old elderly pastor. And so Polycarp was burned at the stake. And you ought to read a bit about the story because it's quite interesting what he said, what he did, and how it all worked out. But church history is replete with examples of bold and seemingly fearless witnesses for Jesus. If you think about in Germany, uh, don't, you know, people automatically go to Martin Luther, and certainly he said he can't recant, uh, and he'll stand on the Word of God. But, but you can go back to 723, not 1500, but about 700 years before then, there was a missionary by the name of Boniface in Germany. And he boldly cut down the great oak tree that the pagans worshipped uh, because they thought it was central uh, to the worship of Donner, who was the German god of thunder, who the Scandinavians call Thor, and we know from the Avengers. Now, Boniface went to Donner's great oak, and he stripped to the waist, and he took an axe to the tree. Pretty bold and fearless, isn't it? And, and since Donner gave no answer, a number of the gathered soldiers who were the oak's protector well, they rejected Donner, the god of thunder, and they put their faith in Christ, and they were baptized. And, and history tells us from the wood of Donner's oak, Boniface built a chapel from which he preached the gospel and brought many to faith in Christ. And, and so clearly throughout church history, we have example after example after example after example of people who are bold and seemingly fearless in their witness for Jesus. And clearly, God uses their work to advance the work of God. But, but letter B today is the one I want you to really zero in on, and that is this. While it is somewhat surprising, there is no denying that God also uses timid and seemingly fearful people to build His kingdom. Listen in again at verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you in the rowdy church at Corinth. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, Paul the bold and fearless. So let no one despise him. That is, Timothy could easily be overrun and outdone in such a rowdy church. Now why does Timothy, doing the Lord's work, just like Paul, need to be put at ease among the Corinthians? Well, I think it's because unlike the Apostle Paul, who's bold and seemingly fearless, Timothy is much more timid and seemingly somewhat fearful. 
when Paul counsels Timothy personally in his last letter ever, he writes to his devoted disciple Timothy, and he writes in 2 Timothy 1.6 just this, For this reason I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands, for God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and self-control. I believe Timothy needed to hear that because in his human nature, he was timid Timothy. And it was going to take the divine inside coming out through the power of Christ to bring out something more than timidity. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, some of us are bold and fearless. And you can probably pick them out of the congregation pretty quickly. But many of us are not. Many of us will need to take a page from the disciples themselves when they faced a world hostile to the gospel in the face of persecution and strong opposition. What did they do? They prayed. In Acts 4.29, they prayed, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness. Because they knew they did not have the metal to do this, so they asked God to help them to do this. To speak the Word in the face of opposition and persecution with all boldness. Friends, God uses bold people and God uses timid people. And sometimes there is no more powerful a witness than when a simple, humble, gentle person is filled with uncharacteristic boldness in their witness for Jesus in that instance. And then their friends and their neighbors and their co-workers, they see something stunningly different in that moment in that saint. It reminds me a lot uh, like how in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, when the Bible says the Jewish rulers and elders and scribes, they, they gathered together in Jerusalem. And they had Annas the high priest and Caiaphas the former high priest and John and Alexander. All of the heavies were there and, and all who were of the high priestly family. And all of these people conspired together to use intimidation and interrogation to, against Peter and John. Because Peter and John wouldn't shut up about Jesus in Jerusalem. And in Acts 4.13, the Bible records, now when all of those heavies of Jewish society saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that these were uneducated, common fishermen, they were astonished. Friends, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Uh, we may by nature be, be timid and fearful, but by God's grace, God can use us. It is in our weakness that Christ's strength is best seen to a watching world. Sometimes, all we can do is cry out like the Father in Luke chapter 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There are times we believe God needs to show up. There are times we believe we need to be bold. There are times we believe that we need to see God open a door for our message 
And we need to throw up that little arrow prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me get started for You in this. Now, in our passage, we also see, letter C, uh, that God also uses, well, He uses seasoned ministry veterans at times to build His kingdom. Now, we pretty much expect this. This is who we think everyone, you know, this is how the kingdom of God is built, is C, we think. Uh, We've already mentioned the Apostle Paul. He's a pretty seasoned ministry veteran. But there's also another highly capable brother or two hidden in our Scripture building God's kingdom feverishly in our text today. Look at verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, underline that guy, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He'll come when he has opportunity. Now you need to remember that Apollos had already powerfully pastored the contentious church of Corinth. And he was such a powerful witness that some followed Apollos and some followed Paul and some followed Cephas and kind of made a mess. Apollos is first mentioned in Scripture in Acts chapter 18 where he is preaching eloquently at Ephesus, the epicenter of the occult. Clearly, God uses seasoned ministry veterans to build His kingdom. That seems pretty obvious. But I want you to see the corollary of letter D today because we often forget it. Yes, God uses seasoned ministry veterans to build His kingdom, but God also uses less proven ministry learners to build His kingdom. God also uses less proven ministry learners to build His kingdom. You see, Timothy was no Paul. Timothy was learning and he was growing. He did not have the the giftedness that would reach the heights of effectiveness as the man in which he apprenticed the Apostle Paul had reached. But but the Apostle Paul is a pretty high bar and not many saints are ever going to get there. Timothy was no Paul, but he wasn't useless. He was different. The Scriptures reveal Timothy's strategic contribution to numerous congregations. His contribution was significant, and we mustn't miss it. Here, Timothy is dispatched to Corinth. Elsewhere, he's sent to Ephesus. Now, at Ephesus, he had a very tall task. He had to confront the false teachers who were creeping into the church and distorting the teachings and corrupting the character of the congregation. Now, imagine being sent to the epicenter of the cult to go to face down false teachers who obviously are eloquent, brilliant, or nobody be following them, perhaps demonically empowered in their false teaching. And here you are, this rather timid by nature young minister. The congregation at Ephesus might be tempted to dismiss the younger and more timid brother in the face of these older and presumably more eloquent false teachers who are trying to pull the wool over the congregation's eyes. And to do it, they pull rank and say, see, we're older. See, we're smarter. See, we're better. But all they were doing was filling the congregation with with needless distractions and endless discussions and pointless disputations about genealogies and other trivialities. And the congregation got swept up in their rhetoric instead of in the richness and reality of Scripture. 
So Paul tells young Timothy, hey buddy, you need to eat your spiritual Wheaties. You need to have a diet high in iron so there will be steel in your soul as you face a situation out of control. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. And until I come, will you devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture? It was Scripture that was going to fix the broken church. To exhortation, to teaching. Don't neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you, you need to practice these things. You need to immerse yourself in these Scriptures so that everyone can see your progress. Timothy hadn't arrived yet, but he was heading somewhere. He was heading to the better. And in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers word-centric ministry assignment. Friends, we must make room for, for less proven ministry learners or one day we're going to run out of ministry veterans, won't we? In fact, right now, uh, in our own free church, there's a huge number of pastors that in the next 10 years will be retiring. Some statistic someone threw at me that could probably be wrong was something like half of all senior pastors face retirement in the next 10 years. Who will fill those pulpits? And what will they fill those pulpits with? Rhetoric or the Word of God? We must make room for less proven ministry learners or we will run out of ministry Veterans. And so, young Timothys must be given appropriate responsibilities. Those who then sit under these emerging leaders ought not try to subvert their leadership. What Paul says to the young minister tasked to remain in Ephesus is what he says to the entire rowdy congregation back in Corinth about to receive this, this young minister commissioned for Christ's service. Listen in again to the Word of God in verse 10. When Timothy, the learning minister, the, the young minister, the, the timid minister comes, see that you as a church do what? Put him at ease. Among you. You can't control what the world does, but you can control what the church does to that young minister. For he is doing the work of the Lord. He's not doing your work. You might be writing the check. God is the one that sent him. As I am, that is, as you would treat Paul, treat Timothy. So let no one despise him. Help him. That's what the Word of God says. But sadly, sometimes, some saints try to thwart and try to buck emerging leaders. And so what do these emerging leaders do? Well, <laughs> they go elsewhere. And they lead congregations of only young people who will accept their leadership. And they produce a church instead of what God wants, where, where we have a church that's, that's united in Christ and of different ages and stages. We end up with churches where the church is utterly divided by age. It's the church of the old people and the church of the young people, and they meet in two different locations, and they're two separate congregations. Instead of what we see in the New Testament, 
where there's this richness of witness between generations and stages and socioeconomic situations. Now, when we have this situation, and it's very common, we lose the richness of, an, of the experienced saint sitting next to and as an example for that younger brother or sister in Christ. And then that experienced saint also loses the, 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 the younger brother or sister in Christ who's full of vibrance and vigor and who's, who has a passion and a zeal for the work of the Lord and, and can sometimes sort of rekindle the fire that's gone a little bit out in that experienced saint who somehow has had their spiritual fervor sort of leak out through the many years of service. You see, friends, we need each other. And so we need to lovingly support, not sinfully thwart, less proven leaders, or we'll never have ministry veterans, and the church will be in trouble. Which brings us to letter E. Letter E today. God uses vocational ministers to build His kingdom. It's not all who God uses, but it's certainly a significant one. God uses vocational ministers to build His kingdom. And again, this is one that we seem to understand intuitively. In our passage, we have the Apostle Paul, vocational minister. His protege, Timothy, vocational minister. We have the eloquent Apollos, vocational minister. And they're all mentioned doing significant kingdom-building activity. Clearly, there will be those called of God into vocational Christian service. And so we ought to thank God for the pastors and preachers and Bible teachers and seminary professors and, and missionaries and evangelists that, that God has graciously given us. These gifts to the church. Christ gives us these people, the Scriptures say, to prepare us for the work of the ministry. But I also want you to see today, because I think we understand that God raises up those people, but I want you to understand letter F today. God also uses dedicated lay people to build His kingdom. God also uses dedicated lay people to build His kingdom. I want you to listen to all the lay people mentioned starting at verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers... And you know, the household of Stephanus was one of the first converts in Achaia. And, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and fellow laborer. So within the household of Stephanus, there's a bunch of lay workers and lay laborers. And he singles some of them out. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. They have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. And then he lists some more people. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, they send a hearty greetings in the Lord. So, who are these people? Well, the household of Stephanus were some of the first converts in Achaia. Uh, these were some of the first few people Paul saw come to Christ and therefore, they are some of the few people Paul baptized at Corinth. When we learned earlier that he hadn't hardly baptized anyone, he said, I'm glad that I haven't baptized many of you. You'd be fighting about that. I did baptize a few of you. And he lists specifically this individual in his household. Why? Because they were some of the first people, apparently, who came to Christ. And so there was no one to baptize them because Paul was the pastor and there weren't any sheep. And now that there are sheep, those sheep grew up and they became leaders in the church. And it would seem that Paul... Let them 
baptize one another. And so, clearly, the household of Stephanus are leaders. Because Paul tells the entire church in Corinth to be subject to such as these. That is, to submit yourselves to their leadership. And then he says we ought to give recognition to such people. And we know that the, the elder who rules well is worthy of double honor, that is remuneration, but every elder is worthy of single honor, which is veneration, which is not just submission, but also appreciation. And so what do we see here? We see lay leaders in the church of Corinth. Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, well, they were resident members of the Corinthian church. But I want to also highlight a very special very mobile couple that we miss if we're not paying attention when we read the pages of the Bible. In this passage, in this translation, they're referred to as Aquila and Prisca. They're mentioned in verse 20. Prisca is another way or a variant way to spell and say the word Priscilla. They're the same person in the New Testament. So, if you're reading this verse from the NIV, the NIV, to make sure you understand Aquila and Prisca are the same as Aquila and Priscilla, they simply call it Aquila and Priscilla. The ESV uh, says Aquila and Prisca, our text today. Now, Aquila and Prisca, or Aquila and Priscilla, same couple, are mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 16. They're also mentioned in Romans 16. They're mentioned again in 2 Timothy 4, but we first meet them. In Acts 18, Aquila and Priscilla are a unique, kingdom-minded couple. They are lay people who routinely moved their business to attend to the king's business. They routinely moved their business to attend to the king's business. They are fellow tent makers with Paul. They were key lay leaders in several notable New Testament congregations. Paul first meets them at Corinth. Acts 18 says it like this. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And when he went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently who had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla or Prisca because the emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because Paul was of the same trade, Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And then Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks in Corinth. And so Aquila and Priscilla, what do we know about them? Well, he's a native of Pontius. And Pontius, if you pull out a map, is the northern portion of Asia Minor. North Turkey today. It's right there on the Black Sea. And he's a native of, of, of modern Turkey on the Black Sea, but he had gone to Italy and he had gone about the work of ministry as a lay person and he was forced out of Italy because of the emperor's anger over the constant disturbances in the synagogues regarding Jesus Christ being preached there according to the historian Suetonius. So we have this migratory couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and they're seemingly in the thick of ministry in Rome, and then they're providentially through persecution moved to Corinth where they link up with Paul and they plant a church 
together. The church that we have this book from. And then Acts 18, 18 tells us this special couple, they voluntarily pack up their business and they head with Paul over to Ephesus the epicenter of the occult in the ancient world, and they help start a church over there too. And by the time Paul writes Romans, about AD 58 or so, we see that Prisca and Aquila are hosting a church, not in Ephesus, not in Corinth, but they've made it back to Rome, and there is a church meeting in their home. Romans 16.3 tells us, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now, very unusually for ancient society, though this couple's name is mentioned six times, in four of them, the wife's name comes first in the best Greek text. Unusual. That's not how life worked back then. Four of the six times, the wife's name is listed first in our best Greek text. And so we get the impression that she may be the stronger of the two saints. Perhaps she's the more gifted of the two saints. And while her husband would have no doubt been the church's elder, that's how Paul and the New Testament require it, she certainly wasn't lacking in leadership ability. In fact, it was Prisca and Aquila who would help the eloquent Apollos iron out some of his theology. The Bible says in Acts 18.24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, and he was competent in the Scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only of the baptism of John. So he had an accurate but incomplete theology. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, though he only knew partially. But when, more seasoned saints, this lay couple, but when Priscilla, lady first, and Aquila heard him preaching, they took him aside. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They didn't needle him. They didn't harp on him. They didn't show off their knowledge. They didn't show him up. They didn't stop the service. They pulled him aside later and said, you know, hey, I want to encourage you. You're sharing the gospel faithfully. Do you know about this truth in Scripture? And they helped him grow. They didn't undercut him. They elevated his understanding. Oh, how we need gifted, committed, kingdom-minded couples. I have known those who, because of service in the military or their industry, have had to move often. Often they've had to move overseas even. And some of these saints are strategic catalysts to many churches around the world. They're a tremendous support to that local pastor. This couple comes in and is able to come alongside them and help them in the work of the Lord. And Sometimes they provide some of the funding in some of this work because they're maybe expatriates and they're paid on a different level than the nationals and they're able to really just move that work forward. I want to ask the question, though, 
Here they are in the New Testament. We have a church in Corinth because there was this couple. We have a church in Ephesus. We have a church meeting in their house in Rome. How many couples today would be willing to move regularly to serve God's church more effectively? How many couples today would be willing to move regularly to serve Christ's church more effectively? And and if you're in one of those industries or in the military and you move a lot, Do you make it your mission to immediately get involved in the work of the Lord wherever God has assigned you for that moment? Because I found that many saints who move a lot, they spend a long time in their move to find just the right church. And right around when they find it, they get relocated again. Just when they really start seeing their relationships blossom, and their service ramp up for Jesus, they're gone. How different Aquila and Priscilla were who immediately got stuck into the work of the Lord. Perhaps if your vocation causes you to be in new locations frequently, perhaps you might start asking the Lord, would you use us in our generation to be the Priscilla's and Aquila's of today? Be open to using your home like they did to host a Bible study or even launch a church. Be open to seeking ways to encourage local ministries and local ministers. Be open to seeing the work of your hands do more than just advance your career, but rather advance the kingdom of God for as long as you're there. Wherever you are. And so now we come to letter G today. Letter G. Letter G is this. God uses celebrated somebodies to build His kingdom. God uses celebrated somebodies to build His kingdom. And again, we kind of know this intuitively. In one of cinema's most iconic lines, Marlon Brando, when he was thinner as an actor, in the movie On the Waterfront said, you don't understand. I I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. And in our passage, there are a number of celebrated somebodies mentioned. Verse 12 and verse 21 name the most prominent two. The Apostle Paul and Apollos. Acts tells us Apollos was a gospel preacher with a powerful eloquence, and he handled the Scriptures with great competence. The Apostle Paul, well, well, he's probably the greatest missionary, greatest church planter, greatest theologian maybe ever given to God's church. Paul would be in in a new location with no foundation for a few weeks or at most a few years. And there'd be a brand new church when he would leave. Uh, There would be local leaders raised up and placed in eldership. There would be great doctrines expounded and great problems unthreaded. 13 of our 27 New Testament books come from this great theologian. God used the brilliant Paul and the eloquent Apollos. And God used the strategic, catalytic kingdom couple of Aquila and Priscilla. But friends, I would be remiss in this if I didn't help you also notice that it's absolutely critically important that we get our arms around letter H today. 
Letter H is this. God also uses unheralded nobodies to build His kingdom. God loves to use unheralded nobodies to build His kingdom. Look at verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. That is, in the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, how much of it did Paul write with his own hand? Just this. Just this final ending to his letter. Just this final greeting. That's all he wrote with his own hand. Now, all of the letter came ultimately from God Almighty, because no prophet was ever moved by his own, but rather the Spirit of God. And Paul was the author of this letter in that the content came through the Holy Spirit, through the mind of Paul. However, it was not the pen of Paul that put ink to it. Paul frequently dictated his letters to a scribe who wrote down what Paul was saying. And scholars call this scribe an amanuensis. And you can impress people at parties if you know that it's an amanuensis. You probably need to go to better parties, though, if that works for you. We see in Colossians 4.18 how Paul is using a scribe, an amanuensis. In Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting, this ending, with my own hand. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 3.17. I, Paul, write this greeting, this ending, with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness. In every letter of mine, this is the way that I write. That is, there's something characteristic in Paul's lettering that everyone goes, okay, that, that part Paul wrote, because look at how he wrote it. Why did Paul use an amanuensis? Well, possibly because he could think more clearly orally, and it didn't interrupt the train of his thoughts. He could get out his sentence and the other guy's writing it down, possibly. But more than likely, it's most probable that this was because of Paul's thorn in his flesh. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul himself writes, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations I have received, a thorn was given me in the flesh. He doesn't say what it is. But he says what it does. It was a messenger of Satan to harass me. It was something that hindered and thwarted and held him back. Why? God used an evil thing for a good purpose. To keep Paul from becoming conceited, he said. He gave, God gave him a limitation so he wouldn't get a big head. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That it should leave me. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul was going to get to take it up to the third heaven and see things he's not allowed to tell us about. But lest he thinks he's super wonderful because he got to see it, God said, I'm going to do something that you're not going to be able to do. I'm going to put a limitation on you so that you see that you need me. And that my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is, then the strength of Christ is seen in me. So the question becomes, what's Paul's thorn in his flesh? And we don't know with certainty. Uh, some say it was his numerous adversaries. 
Some say it was some malady such as frequent bouts of malaria as he would travel all throughout the ancient world. But most likely, not conclusively, but most likely the culprit was Paul's eyesight. He writes, the Bible says, with large letters, like a child. Not because he's illiterate. The man's brilliant. He's multilingual. He can dictate out lengthy arguments that we have to spend 300 pages of commentaries to explain. And he writes it from memory. So, Paul writes with large letters, not because he's a third grader with special scissors and a big thick pencil. He writes with large letters because he's losing his eyesight, I think. And there was no cataract surgery in the ancient world. and There weren't bifocals in his day. So as you lost your vision, your world became restricted. And this would be a tremendous blow to a man of letters trained under Gamaliel who writes 13 of our 27 New Testament books. But I want to focus not on Paul's eyesight, I want to focus on the people who pushed the pen for the Apostle Paul when in his weakness, he couldn't do it. He had to have others do it for him. So who was Paul's amanuensis? In Romans 16.22, we are told, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So the amanuensis for the book of Romans was a man named Tertius. Who's Tertius? I have no idea. Nobody else does either. It's never mentioned again anywhere in all the Bible. Writes Romans, exits right, leaves the scene, curtain down. So who is the amanuensis for 1 Corinthians? He's not even named. We don't even know his name. And yet we ought to thank God for saints like Tertius and, and whomever took dictation for Paul in giving us this letter. And we ought to remember that most of the work of the Lord, most of it, is not done in mighty ways through the mighty deeds of, of mighty saints who become celebrated somebodies in the annals of history. Instead, most ministry is done quietly. It's done in the main mundane. And it's done by saints. We don't even know their names. Praise God for all the unheralded nobodies. Right now, this Sunday, all across the world, who are strategically and quietly building the kingdom of God for Jesus' glory. And that brings us to letter I. It brings us to letter I today. God uses individuals to build His kingdom. God uses individuals to build His kingdom. God used famous individuals like Paul and Apollos. God used strategically deployable individuals like Priscilla and Aquila. God used strategically embedded individuals like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus who were resident in the Corinthian congregation as their lay leadership. And God used utterly unnamed individuals like Paul's amanuensis. So clearly, God uses individuals to build His kingdom. So let's, as individuals, be busy about the work of the Lord. 
Seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness and letting all the lesser matters be a lesser priority in what we give ourselves to daily. But as much as we see God use individuals, here's the part we miss. We miss and we need to make sure we see it. God, letter J today, God uses entire churches to build His kingdom. God uses entire churches to build His kingdom. Jesus said the gates of hell will come against His church, but it won't prevail against it. Paul writes to the churches. John writes to the churches. Look again at verse 19 and 20 as we see that God uses entire churches. That's His favorite way to build the kingdom of God. The church is Christ's bride. He loves it. He died for it. Look at verse 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings. So here's this messed up church fighting about everything in Corinth. And all the churches in Asia love them, care for them, are praying for them, and greet them. And then there's Aquila and Prisca, together with the church that meets in their house. Well, they send you a hearty greeting. I have a feeling they were also doing some heavy praying. All the brothers where Paul is at, at that church, send their greetings. And then to the church in Corinth, he says, I want you to greet one another within the church with a holy kiss. Now, the churches of Asia would be the multiple churches mentioned in Asia Minor. That would include the churches mentioned in Acts, the, the, the church at the port city of Troas, the great missionary sending church of Antioch, the churches in Lystra and Derbe and Iconium and Tarsus. It might well be uh, speaking of the, the seven churches in Revelation that are all in that area as well. All the churches send greetings. The church that was meeting in Aquila and Priscilla's house send greetings. All the brothers in Ephesus where Paul is worshiping in this writing send their greetings. So the combative church in Corinth ought to stop fighting amongst one another and start loving one another and greeting one another with a holy kiss. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. Instead of berating each other and creating an unholy mess there in Corinth. So now friends, if God uses individuals and churches to build His kingdom, if God uses celebrated somebodies and unheralded nobodies to build His kingdom, if God uses vocational ministers and dedicated lay people to build His kingdom, if God uses the bold and fearless as well as the timid and fearful to build His kingdom, then guess what? God can use me and you to build His kingdom. That, that's what this passage is leading to. The implicit idea is God can use us to build His kingdom. And so we need to roll up our sleeves and get busy about the work of the Lord. 
And so as we close today, in our second of three sermons in a neglected passage, the throwaway portion, some would wrongly say, of Corinthians, I think we would do well to ask, as Moses urges us in the oldest psalm in all the Bible, most of the psalms are by David or Asaph, there's one or two from Moses, Psalm 90. And Moses asked the Lord to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We think that we have forever to do whatever and we'll get around to that thing, witnessing to that person, serving in that way. When I get far enough in my career over here, then I'll serve the Lord more over there. And you know what? There's no guarantee of tomorrow. There's only a guarantee of today. So do something today. Moses asked the Lord, establish the work of my hands. See, we can, we, can, we can be so busy with productivity, what we think is productivity, but it's just busyness. But when we do the king's business, that activity becomes spiritual productivity. And apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So Lord, establish the work of our hands and help us to recalibrate You know that, that, that firm that seems so firm can go up in an instant through a virus that prevents us from doing business. That building that we went to work that seems so powerful can go up in flames overnight because somebody's upset, perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly. But the Lord can calibrate our life that what we do matters forever. So use this life and your worldly wealth to win friends who meet you in heaven and you can worship Jesus together forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that our salvation doesn't depend on our industry. Our salvation doesn't depend on our effort. Our salvation doesn't depend on how many widgets we produce for You. Our salvation depends on Jesus. We come into the kingdom of God through the Son of God who through His own blood has purchased and redeemed the Lamb, uh, the, the, the bride. Uh, we, we, we thank You for Your great grace to us. We thank You that we embrace this grace not through works, but through faith that we come into the kingdom 100% because of Jesus. We come humbly. You give grace to the humble, but You oppose the proud. Uh, our works will not work as we learned last week from our brother who shared that, that salvation is in Christ alone, through faith alone, because of Your grace alone. And yet, our salvation shouldn't stay alone. That once we are saved, that true believers have real root in Christ, therefore they will produce over time real fruit for Christ. Lord Jesus, make us more fruitful. We, we know in the parable of the soils that there are, there are three who have no fruit because they have no root. There's the hard-packed soil that hears a truth like this and it bounces off of them like a marble on hot asphalt. And as the seed hits and doesn't penetrate, the birds of the air come and pick up that seed and it's just gone. But then there's two others that look good, but they don't have roots, they don't bear fruit. There's the, the soil that uh, has the weeds in it. And so the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of life choke out and it never bears fruit. It has a shoot of interest in Jesus, but never bears any fruit for Jesus because it never had any root in Jesus. It just had 
interest for a moment until something else was more interesting. And then there's, there's the soil on the rocky places. And since there's no ability for roots to go down deep, they send up shoots that wither and come apart when the sun of persecution comes. There's nothing for them to survive. And so, it isn't our enthusiasm initially. It's our rooting in Christ eternally. And so I pray, Lord, if there are those that know about Jesus today, but who have not put their faith in Jesus today, Jesus asks us to make Him Lord of our life. If you confess, Lord, Lord, and believe that God raised Him from the dead. That is, you believe in biblical Jesus, and you submit to Jesus being your God. You shall be saved. If there are any today in the sound of my voice on the internet that have yet to put their faith in Christ and you want to do that today, you say, I want God to be Lord of my life. I believe that Jesus was fully man and fully God and that He died to fully pay for a sin that I could not fully pay. I want to be made His child now and forever starting today. You can pray with me right here, right now. Your prayer can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me for I am a sinner. And I know that I need a Savior. And so I look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the, the sinless Son of God, who, who lived virtuously and sinlessly, who died vicariously for me, and then rose victoriously, that I might know that I can spend eternity with you. Give me a boldness for Jesus. Amen.